Welcome to Texas Rising, a show that explores the driving forces behind the financial phenomenon that is the Texas miracle. Join your hosts, business leaders and dads, Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman, as they bring you luminaries from across the great state of Texas to talk business, culture, public policy, and much more. And now, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, this is Texas Rising. back to Texas Rising. I'm here with Professor Alana Redstone up in Illinois, and she also happens to be cross-assigned to University of Austin here in Texas. Thrilled to have her on the show. We've had a friendship for the past couple of years really around topics of intellectual diversity and academic freedom and working through having difficult conversations with people that we may not agree with, but trying to move intellectual curiosity forward. So Alana, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah. So I kind of want to start near the beginning of your story. When was the first time you realized that you had a deep and abiding passion for having hard conversations and like thinking about how to engage people of different perspectives and why that was so important to you? That's a good question. So there is kind of the... There are two ways I think about that question. One is kind of like, let's do a deep dive into my childhood answer, which I think (laughs) I'll scare you. And then the other one, but the other answer, which, and I think they're equally apt, they're just kind of different ways of thinking about it. When I was, one of the sort of initial experiences that I think about is when I was in my, when I was in my mid twenties, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And so I well, I actually had, did a lot of traveling when I was in my twenties, which was, which I was really for, I mean, a lot of sort of just working overseas in different countries. And when I was in the Peace Corps, so I was in Togo in West Africa and One of the things that that I think made me realize was just gave me a a sort of new appreciation for how the things we care about are just morally and ethically complex. So I went into the Peace Corps kind of thinking, you know, as a sort of exuberant young person trying to do some good in the world. And, And just to be clear, like in what I'm saying, like, I still think the Peace Corps is a great organization. Like, I think like, oh, you know, yes. I think point isn't, my point is not to contradict that at all. My point is just that what I learned was that there, even with something like that, there were still trade-offs. It was still complicated. So for example, the government, this was, like I said, this was in Togo, the government, you know, there was a fair amount of corruption. So, which is not, you know, for many people who know think who know about sort of post-independence or well, pre-independence wasn't any better, but it was worse in in different ways. But um sub-Saharan Africa. So the government there was corruption in the government. And so were the question was to me was were we sort of propping up that government? Were we playing a role in I don't think I was unique in asking these questions. I think these are things that other volunteers struggle with as well. You know, or for example, were we contributing, was us being there contributing to sort of a, people will think of as like a dependency mentality. You know, why was it that in the village that I lived in, you know, someone came to my door at one point and, you know, and asked me to help him understand why his tomatoes were rotting on the vine. There are at least 100 people in that village who could have answered that way better than I could have. And so, you know, so was our was I playing a role just being there and sort of contributing to that? And so I did stay. I finished my service. I mean, I didn't leave early. 
you know, but I, just the question sort of, am I, you know, did I do the right thing? Am I the better, am I better, am I a better or worse person for having stayed? I guess just my point in all of this, sort of the realization that, again, like things we care about in the world the most are complicated and not seeing things as sort of unambiguously good or bad or without trade-offs. And so part of that is kind of a commitment to like an intellectual and moral commitment to understanding what those trade-offs are and sort of working with other people to do the same thing, if that makes any sense. No, that that absolutely resonates. And I'm just thinking back to my own experience flying combat in Afghanistan. And Hmm. I had a very clear view of what I thought the war was going to be like and who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. And I remember flying a specific combat mission where we were just observers as the Afghan National Army basically invaded an innocent town, our our allies. And, you know, I had been doing reading beforehand just on the history of Afghanistan and the challenges in that particular culture and country. And so the inkling of like, you know, is everything I'm being told accurate? You know, that question mark was raised. But seeing that front and center, it made me appreciate how complex and nuanced things are. And to your point, the trade-offs that go into most decisions we make on a day-to-day basis in our own personal lives, but also at the international and national level. And the complexity of things and the desire and need to try to understand it and go beyond the narratives. So I think there's a lot in what you said really comports with my international experience as well in a different context, but, but is very viable. So I want to shift a little bit from, okay, so you went to the Peace Corps, you have this experience in Togo, you saw the complexity of the world, then you transitioned into academia. How was that path for you? Why did you choose to go that route? And what did you learn through the academic process that, again, set you up for some of the things you're doing now? So I went to, when, after the Peace Corps, I I can't remember exactly, but I think I went back and I took a couple of courses at UMass Amherst, which was where I was living, where my my father was living. And then I went into a master's program that I chose largely because largely because it didn't require GRE scores. And it was, but it was like it was a program in international well, it's called sustainable international development. And it was not I was not the right program for me. But what I what did happen in that program was that I came across, I started working with a professor who really kind of became a mentor for me. And I started doing research with him. And he was the first person who was like, you know, you should go get a PhD. And I was like, you know, me, like, you've got to be, you're kidding. And, you know, so that was the first time I sort of started thinking about it. And then I applied. And then I, at the time, I was really interested in studying immigration. And so he was like, well, you know, Doug Massey, who is retiring now, but he was then he was at Penn. He was like, well, you should you know, this is who you should work with. And I was like, that makes sense. I was like, okay. So I took the GREs and and applied and with the took the GREs that I'd avoided previously and went to Penn and and got a joint degree in demography and sociology and then came to the University of Illinois and where I still have a full-time faculty position in the sociology department. But I don't and I did I did sort of traditional academic work in immigration for, you know, for over a decade just sort of publishing academic papers, mostly quantitative research, sort of analyzing data. But so, yeah, I mean, I think that was that was sort of that transition for me. But I was always sort of interested in how people think about complex and controversial problems. And, you know, sociology is 
a sort of clearinghouse for for you know if you want to think issues around identity and and inequality and how we think about you know all of these different and discrimination and and all of these things and these are topics that in a sociology department and sociology classes you're talking about all the time and i and i over time would sort of notice that the discussions the way that they unfolded both with people in my discipline and and with students as well would unfold in a way that seemed to take a lot of things as given that didn't seem like they were given to me like you know mm-hmm. assumptions about how we think about identity assumptions about how we think about the causes and so, causes of and solutions to inequality um in a, in the sense of being entirely due to structural discrimination or something like that or I'm trying to think of what a third example might be. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on a third. Well, the third. I, I think there's there are many examples in sociology, and I think you're touching on on the iceberg there. Yeah. When you first engaged in that, like, were you in a position or a role to? How did you encourage discussion in your classroom? I guess what what was your approach to kind of exploring those untouchable ideas, or maybe the ideas that were givens that maybe weren't? What, what was your what was your thought on how to engage in those? So my thinking on this has certainly evolved over time. I think what I started to do early on, it was, I was not as clear in my own thinking. Like if I go back, you know, five years or whatever, like I was not as clear in my own thinking. So I'll answer it now with the benefit of what I, having given this a lot of thought over the last sure. couple of years, yeah, yeah. If you, you would have gotten a less coherent answer five years ago. The way that I approach these issues is really from the place of kind of where we started with this idea that the things we care about are morally and ethically complex. And so that actually has a particular set of implications. That means that so if we can kind of define what those issues are, like what are the things that we care about? So, for example, and we talked about this, we mentioned this already a little bit, like so whether it's inequality, identity, issues around racism, sexism, harm, freedom, questions around intent. I don't mean to suggest that these are mutually exclusive categories. There's a lot of overlap, but all of these things where we, we tend to feel like the stakes are really high. When we're talking about those issues, it's actually the feeling of this is so obviously, I so obviously have the right answer to this for someone feels this, that anybody who disagrees is either a moron or hateful in some way. And that's just as true. I don't, I'm not making a claim of symmetry across political parties or anything, but it is from a sort of philosophical standpoint, it is just as true for somebody who says anyone who is opposed to affirmative action is racist as it is for somebody who says anyone who kneels during the national anthem hates this country, right? And so it's that, and that doesn't mean, just to be super clear, it doesn't mean that there aren't people who are racist. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who hate this country. It's just a willingness to sort of interrogate our own thinking and, and ask ourselves, be willing to really sort of ask ourselves, how do we know who's who and what's what? And so where I come into this is sort of trying to work with students to push their own thinking and to understand that they're when they have that sort of that sense of almost righteous indignation, mm-hmm. that that's actually what they need to interrogate because it's always based on something. And I don't use words like always without great yeah. caution, but it's, but it's always based on something that we're taking as given something mm-hmm. that we're treating as inviolable or, or something that we're treating as certain. And, you know, this is informed, we haven't talked about the mill Institute, but this UATX, but this informs, you know, it's a lot of the work that, that we do at the mill Institute. So, so, I mean, I'll just give you, I guess I could give you sort of a quick example. One, you know, one thing, so a lot of, I'll try and get students to 
just open up in terms of thinking about all these topics. Like, and and one, two of the topics I would say, like I said, that come up the most are, I would say, racism and inequality. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that I'll ask students sometimes is I'll say, to what do you attribute your success in educationally, right? Your educational success, right? Just by by dint of the fact that you're sitting here in this classroom, like, you know, you've had some educational success and because you all know people who didn't go, didn't get into the U of I or who didn't, you know, didn't go on to college or whatever. So to what do you attribute your educational success? And they'll say things Usually they'll say things like, you know, I studied a lot. I went to class. I, you know, my parents would have killed me if I got bad grades. I had a really inspirational teacher. I had a well-funded school, you know, and on and and so on and so forth down the line. And I'll say, you know, a lot of times when people talk about educational inequality, they'll talk about, you know, the importance, the, the importance of sort of structural factors like structural racism, structural discrimination. And at that point, if a student hasn't said it already, they'll usually sort of nod and be like, oh, yes, right. In this case, sort of the absence of that also helped in my, you know, in my education, in my trajectory. And so then the idea is to say, okay, well, now we have this list of things that people and maybe not every item is on every person's list, but we have this list of things that we've come up with. So can you put them in some kind of rank order? Can you put them, you know, tell me like, well, this is, you know, X percent of, you know, made an X percent contribution to my educational success. This was Y and this was Z and et cetera. In most of what I'm doing, the point isn't the answer. The point is the question, right? Like it's it's to realize that there that the way we think about these questions actually shapes how we think about people who may disagree and getting them to realize that it's not about, it's not that I have some magic number that like, oh, it's, you know, 18% this and 22 the whole point. The point is the question, not the answer. And so that this is a long way of answering your question. Like that really I've found is a way that opens students up to thinking in a different way. I'm not telling them, you know, that I think they're wrong and I'm right and I have the answer. Like, I'm just saying like, this is, this is how it works when we judge. This is actually what's going on when we draw judgments about people who disagree, particularly on contentious issues. And do you see that that then translates into how the students engage in subsequent sessions? Or is it just in that moment when you're asking those open-ended questions that they kind of realize, but then they I don't want to say revert back to where they were, but like, is there growth that you see as you continue to push those things? Is it it sustainable? You know, it's a really good question. So I don't, so I can answer that partly. So in the sense that, you know, it's a 15 week semester. So I get them 15 weeks. And I would say that for many of the students over the course of those 15 weeks, I do see growth. It's really sort of a counterintuitive for most of us to get into the habit of doing. But what I what I do find consistently is that they're more than there's always exceptions, but like willing to have their thinking challenged. Right. Mm. Even if, you know, in week 13, they're still sort of drawing judgments like they're very when I'll sort of push them on it. You know, it's very they're very open to thinking about it. Let me I'll give you an example. First, um, I don't know what happens after week 15. I don't, I don't have a lot of follow-up. I mean, I'll hear from some students and like, you know, obviously you hear from the ones who generally have really nice things to say. I don't (laughs) hear from the ones who have, you know, unflattering things to say, thankfully. Although maybe it would be good to get that constructive criticism beyond (laughs) course evaluations. So I don't know what happened. Like if you went to, you know, a three-year follow-up or something, I don't, I just don't know. Like I would love to think, yes, of course, like it's an impact they carry with them for the rest of their lives. But I just, I I just don't know. Mm -hmm. 
you know, but I can tell you, you know, for the fall semester, for instance, last, this was in the fall of 2022, in the one of the courses I was teaching, you know, this was would have been around probably week, like 12 of the class or week 11. Mm -hmm. And I would often ask students, this is a social problems class, and I'll often ask students to come to the beginning of class and like, like sort of, I'll just say at the beginning of class, I'll just say, okay, the floor is open, like, you know, bring up whatever, whatever you think is whatever's going on out there in the world makes you think of this class that you want to talk about. And those students will bring up all kinds of things. And so this time, student who she had at some other point during this month, oh, there's my cat, huh. some other point during the semester referred to herself as being of Mexican descent. And so she was talking about how over the weekend, she had gone into Target and she was really annoyed by the fact that there was like a, a plastic display of sort of tchotchkes from the Day of the Dead, from El Dia de los Muertos. Mm -hmm. And and so she was, you know, I don't want to overstate how upset, she wasn't like, you know, it's crazy upset, but, you know, it bothered her enough so that she brought it up in class. Mm -hmm. And so my job is not to tell her, you know, boy, that's really thin skinned of you or, you know, or whatever, like it's, that's not why I'm there. So what I did, but it is to sort of push her thinking and in the context of the class, so what we said is I said, okay, well, you know, I get that, like what you're saying, you know, what if let's run the thought experiment? What if someone came into that target store and saw the plastic junk on the end cap of the aisle and through, you know, maybe they asked a salesperson who may or may not know much about the day of the dead, but at least knew enough that that's what it was. And they, you know, they asked them what it is. And they, and so then they, they leave the store knowing that the day of the dead is a, is a thing. Like it's some, it's a, it's an, it's a holiday in Mexico that they, and they didn't know that when they walked in the store, right? Like, does that matter? Does it change anything in terms of the, the value or the, you know, how she's thinking about that end cap, <laughs> you know, or, and then you could, you know, and then you sort of push it a little bit like, well, okay, what if it's not one person? What if it's 50 people? What if it's, you know, 150 people? Like, I don't have an answer, but just for her to understand and in the, in the discussion sort of more generally, like to understand, well, what are the limits? Like there are, there's probably some point where there's a limit. And so, because once you, when you realize that, when you, when you sort of push at the edges of your thinking, you realize that that's the sort of interrogation that helps you back away from the sort of reflexive indignation that, that really is harmful. Like, I mean, it really mm -hmm. is not, I mean, you know, people talk about political polarization and the erosion of trust in institutions. And I mean, this is really one of the things that's at the root of it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're doing is is training them to steel man arguments as opposed to take the straw man is what's what's the way that you yeah, can. I mean, it is, it's interesting. Like, so the idea of steel manning. Yeah. So one of the things that I've sort of to think through in this work is so there's there's a subtle difference with steel manning in the sense that what I'm actually trying to get people to do is going a step further than just engaging with the argument that might come out of someone else's mouth, right? Like, so for example, like take, go back to an affirmative action example. If you're, if you're pro affirmative action and you're talking to someone who is opposed to it, I don't know what kind of argument that person might be making. Like, so let's say my student, the students tend to be more on the progressive side. So let's say the student is, is for, in favor of affirmative action, you know, whatever's coming out of the mouth of that 
person who's against it, it may or may not be a particularly thoughtful argument, right? Like I have, I mean, there are people who make thoughtful arguments against it. There are people who make not thoughtful arguments. My point is that there's value in sort of thinking that through, even if it's not what's coming out of the person, even if the person's argument that they're making is, is, you know, not like, you know, I don't know what an example would be, but it's not particularly thoughtful. It's not mm-hmm, right. about, you know, fairness or identity or sort of how we should think about the allocation of resources or whatever, like, and that there's still value in learning how to challenge your own thinking, even if you're just sitting in a room by yourself. And so there's, so yes, there is a relationship to steel manning, but it's a little bit of a step beyond that in the sense that it's not just about what the other person is saying. It's fundamentally about how you're thinking about it, which is related to what the other person might be saying, but it's actually independent. It also, the value is independent as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. I I hadn't put it together that the steel man in and of itself, even a straw man is a direct reflection of another person, but what you're training is self-reflection. And it's not just about the debate, although that can be important and valuable, but it's about, hey, I have an idea and a thought. How do I wrestle with that internally to either validate or invalidate it so that I can come to a conclusion that I'm willing to challenge myself on? And I might still arrive in the same spot, but at least I've thought about all of the perturbations that that got me there. And it's really self-reflection, which I think is really powerful as opposed to just adversarial potentially. Yeah. I mean, there's an adversarial piece of it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because it it is a skill that will help you interact with people, but it's not, that's not, that's almost secondary. Like, because you have to be like, because it's fundamentally a problem. It's not, we're seeing on these issues is not, if you think about it just as a problem and how we talk to one another, mm. that's good. It doesn't get us all the way there because what, where that is coming from, again, is this is a limitation and just a practice in how we think. Mm. And so I'm saying, let's, let's go straight to the source. Let's yeah. actually work on how we think because it's not, um, it's not, I don't, I don't want to say it's not hard. It is, it is hard in its own way, but it's, it's sort of deceptively simple. And it's very doable. It's just we're most of us are not in the habit of doing it. We're just we, you know, we like to think of things in simple binary terms, and we like to see issues as, as you know, having a right and people as being good and bad and right and wrong. And and what I'm saying is we can just well, let me clarify one other point. There's nothing in what I'm saying that says that we can't label things as right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Like this is not an argument for moral relativism. What it, it's actually what I'm saying is silent on sort of moral relativism or absolutes or, or any of that. Because what I'm saying is actually that part of what we need to do is put words to and be precise in the language when we're talking about our principles and values that are being violated. Because part of what we do when we when we make assumptions is we treat those things as though we don't need to say them out loud. So for example, like, I'll just give you a silly example. Like if I'm, it's dark out now, but if I'm looking out my window and I see someone stealing a car, I'm just making it up. Like, and I say, oh my God, Ben, there's like someone over there stealing a car. Can you believe that? Like, and I'm going to assume you're going to have the same reaction that I am. Why? Well, because you probably, like I do, think that stealing is wrong, right? Like that's the that's the fundamental principle that's being violated. We're not in the habit of naming it because we just assume that 
well, of course he thinks, you know, he's a, of course he thinks stealing is wrong. When it comes to these kinds of contentious issues, we have to get back into the practice of being precise and naming those principles. So for example, you know, if I say, if I say, you know, I think that, I think that denying women and the subject I would agree with, but denying women the right to drive, you know, as has happened in some countries is, is a bad thing, right? There's nothing about what I'm saying about interrogating our own thinking that says that I shouldn't say that or can't say that. What it does mean is I'm making a commitment. And again, this is sort of a ridiculous example, but like, I make, okay, why do I think it's a bad thing? I can imagine a couple, like I might say, I think everyone should have equal rights under the law. If you want to make an argument for why you don't think that's the case, like, Try, go ahead. Like, I mean, I doesn't mean I'm going to change my mind or, you know, I think everyone should have the right. I think every person should have the right to pursue their own potential and their own opportunities. And, you know, driving is a, is an integral part of that, you know, et cetera. So I can, I could come up with what are those principles? What are those things that I'm treating as inviolable? And just in naming them, it puts them out on the table so that someone else, which actually does two things. One is it makes it so other people can sort of question it, right? If they want to. It also makes sure that I'm using words in a way that the other person understands. Like imagine if I said, instead of what I just, instead of the example I just gave, I said, because I think that denying women the right to drive is evil, right? Like, well, yeah. Okay. Well, what do you mean by evil? Like what, and you can imagine the same, like we get into trouble with the use of words, you know, racism being one of them, like where people just fundamentally don't mean the same thing when they're using that language, mm -hmm. racism, sexism, harm, you know, all of these things. And so it also, so not only does it make us name things almost so that once you've named it, people can criticize it. Like as if you're going to, you know, buy a car and you kick the tires, but it also makes clear, like, if there's a difference in how we're using words, it'll reveals that. And so, and, and I think, and I think that's something that gets lost. But again, like just to close the circle on that example, there's nothing that says that I can't say, I think, I think everyone should have equal rights under the law, including women being allowed to drive. Like there's, so there's nothing that prevents me from, you know, planting a stake there. Mm-hmm. The question that comes to mind for me now is you're clearly doing this in the classroom for 15 weeks, and I'm sure it's very helpful. And yet maybe. this seems, well, maybe, but it seems to me this is a this is a critical skill to navigate the current age that we're in right now, where yeah. social media, and I even, I've seen this on, on Twitter, where I like Twitter a lot. I've actually seen a personal experience degradation in the past couple of months as it's optimized to my likes and wants. I'm spending hmm. more time on it, but I don't get the diversity of views that I once did. And I actually appreciate that. And as a result, I'm, I'm finding myself not questioning the beliefs that I have because I like challenging myself. And But it takes a lot of time and effort for someone yeah. to, to actually say, why do I believe this? Why is it? It's not evil. It is X, Y, or Z reason. So do you have any like tips or techniques for people who are curious and interested in, in ensuring they are thinking about the world right? How would you recommend adults, 20 plus years age, out of college, apply principles or exercises they can do in their daily lives to to work this through in their own mind to kind of adopt these philosophies that you're advocating for. So one is that, you know, some people may, some of your listeners may, and you may, I don't know if you're familiar with this, I think it's called the Center for Humane Technology. This is Tristan Harris's sort of what he 
center that he founded to basically combat the way social media and internet platforms kind of use algorithms. So, you know, this is like classic example is sort of, you know, you start out watching a YouTube video of like kittens playing with a ball of yarn and you end up with like, you know, watching some white supremacist rally or something. Sure. Um, As the algorithms just sort of move you to, you know, more extreme. So what he's done is I think of the work that he's done and I'm not an expert on it, but like from what I under the way I understand it is a supply side solution to the problem. And, you know, particularly in social media, sort of trying to tackle it from the supply side. What I'm saying is actually this is a this is a demand side way of understanding that problem. Right. Like this is this is fundamentally about how we take in information. And so I do think it has kind of direct implications for particularly for social media. Again, what I would say in terms of advice is that I guess there's sort of two thoughts that I wanted to add. One is I think there's a lot of similarity, and this will come full circle to your question about advice. There's a lot of similarity between what I'm saying and ideas that people will put out there like intellectual curiosity and intellectual humility. There's a lot of overlap there with one really important difference. And so the difference is that It turns out that we're not particular, and this will probably not come as a big surprise to people, but we're not really good at knowing when we're lacking intellectual humility, right? So like there's this, there's this almost this kind of strange paradox in the sense that by the time you realize that you're lacking intellectual humility or, or, you know, epistemological humility or whatever on something, you're kind of halfway there. Like you're already, like, you're already like, oh, I'm, I need to be, you know, more curious or I need to be, and that's great, but you are, you are sort of already halfway there. So what I'm saying is actually what you should be paying attention to is that moment that you think this person's an idiot, like this person, or this is like, this person's a libtard or this person is racist or whatever. And again, like I know I said this before, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are racist or yeah. you know have odious motives or whatever. But that is actually, it's that sense of righteous indignation that comes from something, whatever it is that you're holding on to as inviolable, that you need to interrogate. Like that is the place, that is your cue to say, okay, and you can do it for even the most, I mean, I did it here for some pretty silly examples, mm-hmm. but like, you know, there is there are always questions because the world is just complicated. I mean, it's just complicated, which is what kind of brings me to my the other point that I wanted to make. There's this you may be familiar with the, the sort of David Foster Wallace's, you know, his story. I think he uses it during his Kenyan, his famous Kenyan college commencement speech in 2005. But he talks about in that a fantastic speech if you haven't read it or listened to it it's amazing oh oh my god it's so good you know one of the best you know commencement speeches of all time according to most people so or many people but anyway one of the things he he tells a sort of short parable about these it's and it's all about like sort of certainty and the way certainty shapes how we think and and Mm. and how it misleads us and distorts the way we see the world and one of the, the sort of short parable that he talks about is he says He's talking about these fish, these two fish, and some people will recognize this. These two fish who are swimming in the ocean or river, I don't even remember, um, swimming in the water. And, you know, this two younger fish and the older fish swims by and he says, hey, boys, you know, how's how you doing? How's the water? And the two fish and the two younger fish go, you know, what the heck is water? Mm-hmm. So my point, if I may be so bold as to draw a parallel, is that what I'm saying, so those fish, 
were no less in water before they realized that they were in water. Like it was just yep. that's the way it was. What I'm describing is kind of what is like, it, it's just the world is fundamentally uncertain and complicated. And we do need to name things. You can choose to not do that. That's fine. Like the fish can choose to, but it doesn't fundamentally, it doesn't change the sort of the underlying, I mean, substrate's yeah. one way to put it. Like it doesn't, you can call it something else, call it something else. You can say that it's not, again, to go back to the water example, you can say it's not water, yeah. but it still is. Right. Like you can say these things are, no, it's simple, or the answers are obvious, or the but it that doesn't make it, that doesn't make it real. Like you mm -hmm. still have to have this sort of intellectual commitment to understanding that this is how we're forming our judgments. And I mean, you can imagine, you can, you can apply this to even the most extreme. I'll just give you one more sort of extreme example, like a historical example, just because it's easy to sort of think through the how how far you can push this. Like, let's take an example like Jack the Ripper, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't no one knows who Jack the Ripper was, but like it doesn't matter for the purposes of this example. Mm -hmm. Like, this is someone who did obviously horrible, horrific things to lots of women. And so how should we think about, I'm talking, I'm sitting here saying, well, you know, it's our tendency to judge and demonize. That is actually the problem. Okay. Well, now I'm giving myself the example of Jack the Ripper. In what world am I not judging or demonizing Jack the Ripper? Well, I can imagine what if I knew, and again, this will sound crazy to some people, but like, or sound too extreme to even entertain as a thought experiment. But what if I knew for sure that whoever Jack the Ripper was had a like a chemical imbalance in his brain that only so that he was destined to only sort of be violent mm -hmm. and 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 be a, and be a rapist and be violent like there was it was just this was sort of chemically how his brain was put together it wouldn't change anything about this grotesque disgusting horrific things that this person did would it change how i think about him uh, maybe it mm -hmm. might you know, it's again, it wouldn't change the reality of what he did, but yeah. would it change how I, if I, if I knew that for sure, would it change how I think about him? Might, like, if I'm being honest with myself, it might. Yep. So anyway, so that's what I'm saying is like willingness to sort of on every dimension, sort of challenge our own thinking. And it can be, you know, it can be, we don't like uncertainty. We don't like it. We like to put things in boxes. We like to, we like to categorize. It makes, and sometimes we need to. Categorization yeah. makes the world you know, a sort of coherent place for us to navigate. Yeah, that's the tricky part is biases and heuristics exist for a reason. Because yeah. it takes time and energy to yeah. find out all the facts. And if I'm right 60% of the time, okay, I'm going yeah. to take that bet most periods, but there's still a 40% where I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But on balance, the trade-off is I'm willing to accept that. I mean, subconsciously, consciously, maybe not. But then you also have to know, okay, when do I not trust the the heuristic? Yeah. And that I think is the second and third order skill that's really hard. And that's probably where wisdom comes in and age and experience to some extent, but yeah. then you can even entrench biases because you get like, okay, the trade-off is worth it for me not to even have to worry about it. And that's where it gets really complex. I think, I mean, so in my own work, when I, so the, I've written a bunch on something I've called the certainty trap. Mm -hmm. So the certainty trap, like one of the things that I try to do in that work is separate the two words mm. there's certainty which is you know the physical world is fundamentally uncertain and then there's the trap piece like i'm gonna i could say i'm certain this is a phone whatever like is there you know some chance that i'm living in the matrix yeah i guess but like 
intestinally small. Yeah. And so there's no trap in that sense because I'm not judging anybody. Like there's no judgment, there's no demonization. It's just, you know, and so it's really not all certainty sort of not all certainty traps us and traps our thinking. Like sometimes it just simplifies the world. These are, mm-hmm. you know, reading glasses, like mm-hmm. whatever. So um, I think that's an I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, we don't have to question every time we walk into a room whether, you know, the thing with the, the flat wooden seat and the four legs, you know, is a chair, yeah, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's almost like when it comes to people and relationships, the non-physical, this physical, but it's more, it really is societal. That's where you need to have a more, you need to think about things outside of just certainty. And to your point earlier, if you feel absolutely certain about somebody else, maybe that's the point to question whether that certainty is justified or not. You should be uncomfortable yeah. if, if. Yeah. I think one of the questions that people will ask sometimes is, you know, well, how, why should anyone do this? Like, why should anyone do what I'm saying? Like certainty is really comfortable. Like it's yeah, really right. nice. It's nice and warm in here. It's like a, you know, yeah. warm blanket, you know, and that's a, it's a really good question. Like the answer is there's a couple of different answers. One is this is at the root of, you know, or it's one of the things at the root of, like I said before, you know, culture wars, political polarization, weaker communities, an inability to communicate across political divides, weakening social trust, weakening trust in institutions. This is one of the main components behind all of those things. Second, even if you care about none of those things, right? Like let's say, and hopefully most people do care about at least some of those, but even if you care about none of them, you might actually just be interested in having a more precise understanding of the world right? Like there's for some people, and I mean, I, I like precision. So there's some, there's, you may, even if you just want to have a more precise understanding of the world, there's value in this. And so that's how I, that's how I sort of think about it, but you're right. It is, it is, you know, it's, I'm asking people to take the long way around. Yeah. I think a third element, and this just comes to my world of, of entrepreneurship is, yeah, it's the driving force behind innovation is where it's comfortable and warm you're not challenging, you have status quo, which might be fine, sure. but it's the opportunities on the edges where you start questioning assumptions and you start testing hypotheses that are outside the norm. That's some yeah. of the biggest changes in society here. Now it's not everything, it's not all the times, maybe one, two yeah. percent of them, but then you have that tail effect where, hey, the one in a thousand thing that actually you discover electricity, you discover how to do reusable right. rockets to get us into, the, into space. Like, okay, that was worth it to go outside of this comfortable milieu that we're in alongside the other elements that you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's costly and there's, it's, it's littered with failure. And so you have to be willing to, to face that reality, I guess. Oh yeah. I mean, there are huge, like, I totally agree with you, particularly with your point about innovation. Yeah. And there are pretty strong psychological forces that are working against everything that I'm saying. I guess what I'm, what, I guess what I hope people will take away is just that, you know, the sort of costs of not doing this in on, on a narrow subset of issues are really high. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. The last 45 minutes just flew by, Alana. This has <laughs> been fantastic. I feel like we could go for another another 45 or beyond. I do want to ask one more, kind of more yeah. targeted question, and it has to do with Texas, but I think it's broader. Yeah. So there's a bill in the legislature right now to basically ban tenure. And tenure is 
very controversial potential in some, but it was built, it was created for a very good reason to allow academic freedom. I know University of Austin in particular, maybe they haven't come out, they're, they're considering what role tenure plays in their faculty setup. Can you talk to us about tenure in 2023 and what that means in the academic environment and what can continue to be used in the university setting to drive freedom of conversations and asking hard questions and having these really important conversations? That is a great question. And so I'm going to answer, I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not, I don't, I'm not in a position where I can speak for UATX, Mm -hmm. but just speaking for myself, this is one of the issues that like, I actually, I actually don't know where I fall on it. Like, I, mm. I honestly don't know. Talk about complicated. Like, I don't know. I can absolutely see an argument for getting rid of tenure. And I have seen what that looks like. You know, so, for example, you know, people who get tenure and just stop producing, right? Like, just stop producing academic research and they just become sort of, you know, a little bit, they just do their teaching and, and, you know, and, and, and that's sort of sort of do the bare minimum and uh, for sometimes, you know, a big chunk of their careers. So there's absolutely sort of this dead weight. That's a callous way of putting it, but this dead weight can create this dead weight problem at the same time. You know, there really are questions about, about, academic freedom and sort of being able to answer, being able to ask and consider questions that are unpopular, unfavorable, you know, sort of that if you left sort of, if you left intellectual questions to sort of to market forces, mm. there may be some questions that are interesting to ask that are just not popular. Right. And so I don't know Like, I wish, you know, I think it maybe there's some way to sort of keep the best parts of tenure and get rid of the worst. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what that would be. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really, I think it's hard. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think the risk of sort of throwing it out without paying attention to the purpose that it serves, like the actual, that, you know, and there may be other ways to sort of other mechanisms that can be put in place to fill that role. Yeah. But that, that, you know, sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater kind of thing, that would seem like it's going to have its own set of unintended consequences that may not be. I mean, what you don't want to have happen, right, I would assume, is you don't want to have a situation where you get rid of tenure, ignoring the the actual things that it did right. And then you have a bunch of instructors and researchers and scholars who never say anything interesting at all ever about anything. Yeah. Everyone's afraid they're going to lose their job all the time. And it is different in some ways, particularly for, I would argue for much of the social sciences and the humanities where you don't have, as opposed to, you know, for example, in engineering or something, there's a whole non-academic job market, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you did Mm -hmm. lose your job, like it's not, you know, yeah, maybe you want to be an academic, but like you, you, Like there's a lot more, there's a, you know, it's a thick job market for some of the rest of us. Like, you know, it's much thinner. Um, And so the threat, which just means that the threat of losing your job is, is hot. Now you could say, well, we need, you know, someone could absolutely make the argument and say, well, we need fewer people in the social sciences and the humanities for precisely that reason. So that you know, we could get rid of tenure and then we would have, there would be fewer people if they got fired for the labor market to absorb. I I get that. Like, that's absolutely an argument that someone could make, but now you're talking about like 
you know, significant structural changes to graduate schools and higher education. So that's a, it's a pretty heavy lift. Yeah. Um, I think, no, that, that, I think that makes sense. And for me, you know, as a small C conservative, mm-hmm. tenure has evolved over hundreds of years. I mean, there's a reason why it's in its current instantiation and it's not perfect. And this goes to the Lindy effect. Like if something has been around for hundreds of years, the Chesterton's fence, like why is the fence there? Well, there's probably a good reason. We may not know why it was put up a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. If we remove it, there will be consequences. We just have to assess those and see if the trade-off is worth it. And your second, your other point, it's, you know, is tenure the problem or is there the third order root problem that we're actually trying to solve? And can you solve that problem? Maybe there's too many, you know, people in the humanities or some people have been more repressed than others. That narrow problem, can you solve it in a different way than throwing out this institution that's evolved over hundreds of years? Maybe. Like, and so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're, t- yeah, you'd have, I mean, but now you're getting into sort of the structure of higher education and like, mm-hmm. you know, would you cut graduate programs? So you're producing fewer PhDs per year. But then if you cut graduate programs, you know, graduate students do a lot of the teaching and like, yeah, yeah, you know, research. Yeah. And now, I mean, I'm not saying that no, you pull a thread in the, th- in the whole sweater yeah, you know, just unravels. Like, it's like you with one thing and then you're like, and that's not necessarily a reason not to make changes, but it is, yeah. it does mean it's not, it's not simple. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Well, hold another podcast. That would be great. To yeah. As we leave, I want to give you a chance. Where can folks find more of your work? Do you have a website? I know you run a couple. I of do. Programs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I think I would love for people to look up to find more information about the Mill Institute at UATX. So mm-hmm. we're exciting work there. And so that's just an easy, I think it's uaustin.org slash mill. And then my own work, I think if I've updated it recently, my consulting website, which is just diverseperspectivesconsulting.com. I think there's a page on there where I have I think it's up to date, all of my writing. And so there's work there. And then I've also done a set of videos called Beyond Bigots and Snowflakes that are on YouTube. I am on Twitter. I don't really do much on Twitter. (laughs) I just pretty much just post things when I write stuff, but I don't, I'm not. So I'll see things, but I'm not super active on Twitter. Awesome. You can follow me if you want to like, you know, (laughs) when I write something. Sure, sure. Promote it. Yeah, and engage with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Alana, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. And oh, thanks for having me. Listeners enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Texas Rising with Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. And remember, folks, keep on the straight and narrow. Don't mess with Texas, and we'll see you next week on Texas Rising.